Case file number 3.4. Rosenberg and Gildenstern are dead, part one. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject one, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject two, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. All right, so today we're going to jump back into the old like historical espionage and all that fun stuff. Great, we haven't done an episode like that for a while. Yeah, I know. I've been uh, I've been jonesing to do one. Today's topic is actually going to be a two-parter because it turns out as I was doing some research and taking notes, uh, there's a lot that went in to this. And so, have you ever heard of the Rosenbergs? Yeah, um, I believe that the wife. Uh, I forget her name, uh, her first name, but she uh, was Ethel. the Ethel. Ethel was, I believe, the first uh, woman ever uh, executed by the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe so. Man, spoils for episode two. <laughs> <laughs> I think after fifty years, we don't get yeah, to call yeah, spoilers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, I know that it had to do with nuclear secrets related to the atomic bomb, and uh-huh. I know that both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were convicted and there was like a brother-in-law involved. And I don't know that I remember a lot more than that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we're mostly focused on uh, Julius Ethel and uh, their brother-in-law, David and Mm -hmm. his wife, Ruth in this episode, along with like, there were, there were a few other people. Um, And then next episode, we'll go more into the, uh, the other folks involved and, you know, what all was passed down, obviously uh, they they got killed, but (laughs) Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. So um, back in September of 1949, the White House told the American people that Russia had successfully detonated an atomic bomb in a really like somber address to the, uh, the public. It basically changed the entire political landscape for years to come and had people jumping under their desk in order to avoid a disintegration by a nuclear blast. Honestly, they should have just tried to hide in fridges like Indiana Jones did in uh, the Crystal Skull movie. But mm, Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, that would be a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It also reminds me of the the one Futurama episode where Fry's his own grandfather and yeah. he drives his grandpa out to the testing range and gets him blown up. Yes. The nasty and the pasty. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not to take away from the Russian scientists, they played a huge part in using their ingenuity and their field to also kind of spur Russia into the atomic age. Mm-hmm. But another part of that story um, was the Rosenbergs, uh, Julius and Ethel. In the summer of 1949, the FBI learned that the secret behind the construction of the atom bomb had been stolen and turned over to a foreign power. And this prompted an investigation that turned up uh, Emil Julius Klaus Fusch, a German-born British atomic scientist. Uh, Fuchs was arrested by the British February 2nd of 1950. But during that investigation, he revealed that he did not know the identity of his American contact. 
Further investigation by the FBI turned up that the American contact in question was by the name of Harry Gold. He was a Philadelphia chemist. And on May 22nd of 1950, he confessed to taking part in all of this. The investigation into his confession also led them to identifying David Greenglass, which is the brother-in-law in question here. Mm-hmm. He, a Soviet agent enlisted in the U.S. Army who had been assigned to Los Alamos in 1944 and 45. Gold stated that he picked up espionage material from Greenglass during June of 45 on instructions from his handler, codenamed John. John was eventually identified as Anatoly Yakovlev, a former Soviet vice consul in New York City and who had left the U.S. in December of 1946. So Julius's confession revealed Greenglass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not the other way around? So um, Julius's confession revealed Harry Gold, and then Harry Gold's confession revealed Greenglass. Okay. So they were just kind of like, just going down this ladder of everyone that was involved. Yeah. So the interrogation of Greenglass and his wife led to their admissions of espionage under the instructions of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the brother and sister, uh, brother-in-law and sister of Greenglass. And then comes Max Licher, probably not pronouncing that right. Uh, he was a naval ordnance engineer and an admitted communist who was also interviewed and disclosed Morton Sobel, a radar engineer and form- former classmate of Rosenberg and Elitcher. And he was also involved in this whole espionage network. So a bunch of bunch of players in this entire thing. Wow, it's much bigger than than I think uh, I got from my top line reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I had only heard this in passing. I think at one point, maybe in a history class or something, and it was just Julius and Ethel, and that was kind of it. Yeah, they might have offhandedly mentioned their brother in law because he was the one obviously getting the secrets because he was stationed in Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. But the media kind of portrayed him more as just those two, which yeah, like, kind of had you questioning like, how did two people in New York City get? atomic secrets like yeah. out of los alamos if they weren't actually even working there yeah i thought that julius was like a physicist working at, at los alamos he was a, he was an electrical engineer mm, okay yeah so some background on all these folks mm-hmm. julius rosenberg was born in may 12th of 1918 in new york city he was the son of immigrants uh, that were both from russia mm-hmm. and ethel rosenberg was born in september 28th of 1915 also in New York City, and her father was Russian and her mother was Austrian. Uh, they both married in June 18th of 1939 in New York City and had two sons, uh, Michael Allen and Robert Harry. And like I mentioned, uh, Julius obtained his electrical engineering degree, um, and at the time of his arrest was actually operating a machine shop in New York City. He was just making various manufacturing goods for a bunch of different companies. Mm-hmm. He courted uh, Ethel. Um, even though her parents did not like him at all. And he just kind of like skirted around them. The uh, Ethel and her brothers occupied an apartment on a floor above their parents. So he would just go up there instead of like ever interfacing with her parents or anything. And that apartment, according to uh, the FBI report, was littered with uh, copies of Communist Party and uh, daily worker literature. And in 1932 and 35, the two of them became devoted communists and maintained nothing was more important than this cause. In March 1944, information was obtained showing Julius Rosenberg was a member of the Communist Party. He was employed at the time by the War Department. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, uh, this established an investigation to his wife, 
who was also signed as the Communist Party, and his position was terminated in December of 1945 because of these uh, connections. Okay. So in 45, like right at the end of World War II. Yeah, exactly. Later on, too, in talking to his brother-in-law, he said, you know, part of kind of influencing him was, hey, like Russia is an ally of the United States because, you know, they were at the time. Why yeah. Why should they not have access to this this technology? Like we shouldn't we shouldn't be keeping it from our allies. In uh, May of 1940, the FBI learned that Ethel Rosenberg had been given an apartment or an appointment rather in the U.S. Census Bureau and that she was a devout communist. She had, along with another woman, been distributing communist literature and signed nominating petitions of the Communist Party. The article didn't say like if she was distributing literature while doing census work or, mm-hmm. you know, that's just on the side sort of thing. Her brother, David Greenglass, mm-hmm. he was a mechanical engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he at first did not like Julius at all or uh, any of his communist views, but basically Julius bribed him with a chemistry set he bought for them. And uh, after that, kind of gained his trust. And uh, Ethel and Julius were able to influence David at a real young age um, into their political views. Well, so actually, that's a point um, that we know about recruitment is it's usually not done in large increments to, or at least to start with. It's usually done in smaller favors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, tiny little favors and just kind of build up to yeah. gain that trust. Because turns out if you just come straight out and say, hey, you want to commit treason with me? Uh, mm-hmm. Most people are going to say, no, also, I'm probably going to turn you in at this point. And and getting them at a younger age, like we see that a lot with um, uh, the Taliban or ISIS and stuff like that. Yeah. If you can get them very early on and kind of indoctrinate them into your views, yes, uh, is way easier. Mm-hmm. So Morton Sobel was born as well to Russian immigrants in uh, New York City. There's a little trend here. And he was also an electrical engineer. He worked for Camp Unity in Wingdale, New York, uh, which was apparently a communist-controlled camp. Uh, for four years before he got, he obtained a position as a junior electrical engineer with the Bureau of uh, Naval Ordnance in D.C. He resigned from that position in October 1940 to further his studies. And while employed with an electric company in New York, he had access to a bunch of classified material, including uh, information on fire control radar. Interesting. Yeah. And eventually he found himself working for another company where he had access to secret data. Uh, He remained there until 1950 when he failed to appear for work one day. Morton and his family had fled to Mexico and were located in Mexico City. Uh, This was discovered through an airline company in LaGuardia Field. They just went and checked the records back when you could, like, do all the booking through the airports themselves. Yeah. Well, I I remember in the 80s, there were still physical tickets. So I remember I went to Costa Rica and there was an issue with my flight and they gave me physical tickets as a compensation. And I was like, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these. I never actually used them. So I just uh, looked at Morton Sobel in, on his picture in Wikipedia. Yeah. From 1976. It's fantastic. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He's got a, a, a plaid jacket. Uh, with a checkered shirt, so pattern on pattern, and he's got the the uh, old man long hair with the not the with a rec- a little bit of receding hairline and the and down to the shoulders, the page boy cut. Is this the one where he's holding flowers? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the one. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's rocking that suit. Yeah. Now I'm not sure 
how much crap I can give because that haircut is not that different than uh, Secretary Munoz of the Department of Energy from um, from the Obama administration <laughs> who got some flack for his haircut. And I'm like, I invoke the law of the Einstein exception. If you're a Nobel Prize winning physicist, you can have your hair any way you want. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, do it. Do whatever you want. You've, you've earned it at that point eccentricity comes in the package but yeah. this guy was not a nobel prize winning physicist so i think we could give him some flack for his hair yeah i feel, I feel like engineers though in all capacities are a little centric in appearance or in some other capacity hush your mouth i'm not eccentric at all oh no that's that's uh, not true <laughs> i'm definitely not eccentric as i rock my like full-on viking uh look so in August of 1950, um, Morton was deported from Mexico from the, by the Mexican authorities. He was taken into uh, custody at uh, Laredo, Texas, by the FBI. So then we come to the filing of charges. Mm -hmm. On June 16th, 1950, the Justice Department was advised of David Greenglass's admissions and authorized uh, the filing of a complaint in Albuquerque, New Mexico, charging him with espionage and conspiracy to violate Title 50 U.S. Code Section 34 with a bail of $100,000. Uh, pretty much all of them uh, had a $100,000 bail. I guess that's the standard for espionage. At yeah, the turn, it may, it may very well have been. That, but that was a lot, lot of money. Yeah, that yeah, was that, like... <laughs> that's a lot of money back then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the um, charges against Julius were filed in uh, July 17th, 1950 for the same amount for bail. On August 3rd, the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York authorized the filing of a sealed complaint against Morton Sobel, charging him with espionage and conspiracy. August 7th, uh, Ethel appeared before a federal grand jury in Southern District of New York and was charged on August 11th. And following his arrest, uh, Morton Sobel was arraigned in the Southern District of Texas. After a lot of back and forth, which I'm not really going to go into, the trial of the Rosenberg's, uh, Rosenberg Sobel espionage began on March 6th of 1950. Mm -hmm. So there was a whole lot of like charges and appeals and a bunch of nitty gritty lawyer talk that really bored me. And I don't really care to. Well, I, I'm, I'm shocked, shocked and amazed because, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's super streamlined. And some of the activities of the Rosenbergs was obviously brought out at this trial, you know, which caused some complications because obviously they're being tried for um, revealing plans for an atomic bomb. So there were, there were a, a few, a few issues with the, the testimony or like some of the evidence entered. Uh, Greenglass in, during his testimony revealed that he entered the U S army in April of 1943 and was assigned in July of 1944 to the Manhattan project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, at the time, he did not know what the project was. Uh, he was just told it was a secret project and had a bunch of training on like how to keep secrets and whatnot. That, that was very common at the time that they, you didn't know what you were getting recruited for until you were already, until you landed, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, two weeks later, he was assigned to Los Alamos, New Mexico. November of 1944, his wife came to visit him in Albuquerque and told him that Julius Rosenberg had advised her that David was actually working on the atom bomb. So Julius was able to piece together exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. David stated that he didn't know what he was actually working on and didn't know if that was the project or not. He did mention, though, that he was working in a group at Los Alamos under a professor of uh, New England University. I just kind of did a quick Google search of uh, professors from New England universities during the Manhattan Project. 
And the only one that kind of like popped up was Philip Morrison. So I don't know if that's he doesn't ring a bell. I'm reasonably conversant in in the top handful of folks because of one of my interests in in the use of proliferation proliferation of atomic technology. Um mm. and uh no, that doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he he described the court the duties of his shop. And that while he was there, he learned the identity of various noted physicists and all of their cover names. Their cover names as well. That's interesting. Mm-hmm, yeah. So David also testified that Rosenberg would uh, speak to him about the merits of the Russian government. And uh, that when his wife came to visit him in November 29th of 1944, she told him that Julius had invited her over to dinner. At this dinner, Ethel told Ruth that they had uh, not been engaging in communist activities anymore or attending club meetings because Julius was doing what he had always wanted to do, which was giving information to the Soviet Union. Well, at least they weren't ambiguous about it. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, fairly smart about it, well, in a sense, too, to cut all ties to, like, any local communist stuff to yeah. brush that under the rug. Mm-hmm. Ethel and Julius expressed interest in David forwarding them information, but Ruth told them that she didn't think that was really a good idea and declined to convey the request to David. Uh, during these talks, Julius pointed out though how the Russian government was an ally and deserved to obtain the information that was not being provided. So she kind of, you know, rescinded on that and actually started talking to David and passing along what Julius and uh, Ethel were telling her. And at first, David refused to do anything for the Rosenbergs, mm-hmm. uh, but on the next day, he agreed to furnish any available data. So a very like quick one eighty. <laughs> so Ruth asked specific questions to David about the Manhattan Project to gain uh, any information that he had, and kind of you know was the liaison between him and Julius. In January 1945, David was furloughed, so he went back to New York City, uh, where Julius contacted him and asked him to write down all the information that he had on the A bomb. Mm-hmm. And that he would pick it up the following morning. Uh, that evening, Greenglass sat down. He wrote up a bunch of information. And the next morning, gave it to Julius, along with a list of scientists at Los Alamos and the names of possible recruits working there who might be sympathetic to communism. They mentioned, too, that his handwriting was just, like, god-awful. And uh, Ruth was like, someone's going to have to translate this uh, if it's going to the Russians. But uh, Ethel was like, nah, don't worry. Like, I'll, I'll just type it up. <laughs> Uh, a few days later, during dinner, David and his wife were introduced to a woman friend of the of the Rosenbergs, uh, who Julius said after she left would probably be wanting to come see David to receive info on the atom bomb. They made a tentative plan to have Ruth move to Albuquerque, and this woman would meet Ruth in a theater. Uh, the initial plan was in Denver to exchange purses, uh, which would contain information that David was passing on to her from Los Alamos. To identify this woman, it was agreed Ruth would use a side of a jello box, which is a very 1940s, 1950s. Yes, ubiquitous at the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, Julius held the matching piece of that box. And David suggested the meeting should uh, actually take place in front of a grocery store uh, in Albuquerque. And the date was left to depend on the time that Ruth would depart for New Mexico. During this visit, uh, Julius also told David that he would like him to meet a Russian who could uh, discuss the project with. A few nights later, an appointment was made for David to meet this Russian between 42nd and 59th Street on First Ave in New York. Uh, David drove up to the meeting place and kind of parked in uh, you know, a dimly lit alley mm-hmm. um, near a saloon. Julius came up to the car, looked inside the car and went away and then returned with a, a man who got into David's car. 
Uh, Julius then just stayed on the street as David drove around with this man who asked him about very specific scientific uh, information of what was going on in Los Alamos. Uh, after driving around for a bit, they returned back to Julius and then, you know, parted ways. In the spring of 1945, Ruth moved to Albuquerque and David visited on weekends. On the first Sunday of June 1945, a man subsequently identified by David as Harry Gold came to visit him and asked if David's name was Greenglass. Uh, Harry was a contact from Julius and came with the half of the jello box that Julius had mm -hmm. uh, to prove that, you know, he was legitimate. Yeah. Uh, David gave Gold a bunch of sketches of write-ups and a list of possible recruits. And for that, David was uh, given $500 from Gold. While furloughed uh, in 1945, Julius came to David and was informed by him that David had obtained a pretty good description of the Atabom at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, at his request, David drew up sketches of the bomb and prepared descriptive material on it. He also listed scientists and possible recruits again for the Soviets to contact and gave them all to the Rosenbergs. So during during this trial, uh, David actually prepared a sketch of a cross section of an atom bomb to indicate that he had or what he had given to Julius. Mm -hmm. So the, the court could see uh, the sketch was impounded by the court <laughs> so as not to be viewable by the public for you know obvious reasons. And, well, it kind of depends on which bomb they're talking about, because uh, the simplest type of a atomic bomb is, is a gun type. Um, I believe that that little boy was was the gun type, and the difficulty in in that type is really getting the material a lot more than the um, than any particular piece of the of the construction. There's well, I guess that's now. Uh, back then, a lot of the nuclear physics required to keep the the uh, material subcritical would have been a lot harder to come by, but. The really complicated ones are the are the fusion bombs, mm. the the H bombs. There's a really complicated thing of of setting basically all angles of it off at the same time. Um, and in order to do that, they they invented a thing called an X circuit, and that piece of technology was considered a a, a pretty difficult trick at the time because even the barest microsecond difference makes a difference. So either you need to set the signal at the same distance or you need to do some trick mm -hmm. to make sure that, that it all goes off at exactly the same time. Right. When I read about it, it, it uh, they didn't describe it in the book past general detail. So I'm not sure if that's even public knowledge at this point. Although that may be an easier problem, electrical engineering problem to uh, deal with now than it used to be. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy like mm -hmm. how much yeah. engineering went into it back in the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's always the thing with, with this era because everything's being done, you know, electromechanically or uh -huh. purely mechanically. And like, it's not programming, it's cogs and wires. Yeah. Like the, the episode we did on the Enigma machine and all yeah, that. Exactly. Like, damn, like you, you did all this without, yeah. Like a soldering iron in a dream. Yeah. So uh, this, this one was. Um, one of the types of bombs that was set off by a barometric, uh, barometric pressure device. Mm -hmm. um, David uh, told the court this uh, during his testimony and also told the court that, you know, Ethel had uh, just typewritten all of this information up mm -hmm. so they could forward it on. As she was typing this, according to David, uh, Julius went into the kitchen and burned all the notes and then flushed them down the drain and then gave David $200. He suggested David stay at Los Alamos even after being discharged to gain more information, mm -hmm. but David declined. 
It might be kind of suspicious. Uh, sure, but it's like, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably like assume though, like maybe maybe we can get away with this, like get out. I mean, I guess I'm I'm a little surprised with some of this that the that their association with the Communist Party, given that this was the era of J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's the question because I, I I feel like I haven't read enough about how the progression of J. Edgar Hoover because he was very he was always very much a massive anti-communist. He wrote mm-hmm. some very polemical stuff and unfounded things about how communism worked, but. When you talk about these things, you can kind of see where the paranoia came from. But I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, I don't know if this caused some of what was happening with J. Edgar Hoover and what he did. I do believe that this probably spurred on um, James Angleton, uh, who was Mm -hmm. director of counterintelligence. I think director of counterintelligence. He was was supposed to be a spy catcher. And he was basically always wrong. Um, (laughs) I mean, maybe we'll do. Maybe we'll we'll talk about him some. But hmm. some folks that legitimately turned and were double were double agents were and and uh, were walk ins to the CIA. Uh-huh. He had them sweated. Oh, really? And uh, I believe it's the guy's name was Kim Philby, who was one of the biggest uh, traders that we've ever had. He was, uh, I believe, a UK liaison. That happened during James Angleton's watch, and he oh, liked shit. drinking with the guy, so he never had him investigated. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, I mean, he was super paranoid and he, and some people contend he did a lot of damage to, to the functioning of the CIA at the time. But like what we know was he was wrong a lot. <laughs> mm, yeah. I was also looking up cause you know, I was trying to remember what year like McCarthyanism kind of, cause that was like, like super witch hunty, like I feel, yeah. but that, that was like in the fifties. The yeah, th- so we're saying all of this basically wrapped up, like they were on trial, like you said, in, in the March of 1950. Yeah, so I'm sure this spurned um, Senator McCarthy kind of like, yeah, you know, lit, lit, the, lit the fire under him to yeah. you know, go on his witch hunt. And there's always really the difference because at this point in time, communism, the Cold War hadn't really ramped up. Mm-hmm. In fact, the atomic bomb was what really started it. But uh there is always the difference between advocacy for communism and, and affinity towards the Soviet Union. There's a lot of gray area there, but there were definitely people that were just on the social welfare side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually hated what became of the Soviet Union because nobody wants gulags. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Still to this day, we're dealing with like, you know, like every everything communism is, you know, where socialism is communism and this sort of like mentality yeah. of just equating them together. Julius also mentioned to David uh, at one point something about a sky platform project. So he, he described it, the sky platform as a large vessel, which could be suspended at a point in space where gravity was low and could travel around the earth like a satellite. Like as I was reading that paragraph, I was like, is he just describing satellites? Like he didn't know this. But then, you know, obviously this was something different than just a you know atypical satellite yeah so i i'm actually really interested in what they thought was going to keep it aloft because about a decade or so later we tried to build a nuclear powered bomber Mm. which would have been able to stay aloft for nearly indefinitely but there was a lot of engineering complications with that 
and we invented ICBMs in the meantime. <laughs> They're like, ah, we got a better one. <laughs> yes. And Julius also told David he had communicated with the Russians by putting material and messages in the alcove of a theater and had received info from one contact relating to atomic energy for airplanes. So, yeah. <laughs> and while testifying, David made mention of Julius claiming also to have received a citation and watch from the Russians and a council table to be used for photographic purposes. In February of 1950, a couple of days before the news and arrest of Dr. Uh, Fush in uh, England was published, mm-hmm. Julius came to David's home and asked David to take a walk with him. Uh, during this, they spoke about Fush and mentioned that the man who had come to see David was also in contact with him. Uh, Julius told David that he would now probably need to leave the country, and get, the, get the hell out of Dodge. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So uh, David told Julius he would need money, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spur, spur the moment thing to flee the country uh, to which he replied he would get money from the Russians and forward it on to David in May 23rd of 1950 Julius showed up at the Green Glass apartment with a newspaper showing Harry Gold had been arrested and gave David $1,000 and said he would come back with $6,000 more uh, to use in leaving the country and that they would need to get a Mexican tourist card he then gave David a form, a letter, instructions to memorize for his use in Mexico City when they fled the country. So the instructions were basically upon arriving in Mexico City, David was to send a letter to the Soviet embassy there and sign it, I. Jackson. Hmm. Three days later, after he sent this letter, he would be carrying a guidebook um, or a guide to the city in his hand with his middle finger between the pages of the guide. He would go to Plaza de la Colon at 5 p.m. and look at the statue of Columbus. He was to wait until a man came up to him where David would then say, this is a magnificent statue, and tell the man that he was from Oklahoma. The answer would be, oh, there are much more beautiful statues in Paris. And then he would give David a passport and additional money. Uh, After this, he was then to go to uh, Veracruz and then either to Sweden or Switzerland. Uh, If he chose Sweden, he was to send the same type of letters to the Soviet uh, ambassador there or the ambassador secretary with the same signature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then again was to go to a statue, uh, this one of Linnaeus uh, in Stockholm at 5 p.m. and be approached again. The same scenario would play out with him, you know, commenting on the statue and someone saying, yeah, there's way better statues in Paris. Sounds like he should have gone to Paris. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> no, then then the, 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 the dialogue wouldn't have worked. <laughs> Where after the men would give him a means of transportation to Czechoslovakia, where he would then write the Soviet amb- ambassador there and advise him of his presence in the country. And assuming from there, they would have like ushered him into uh, Russia. Did he go through with that? Did, did any of that work? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, sometime after this talk with Julius, David and his family uh, went and they got their passport photos taken. Mm-hmm. On Memorial Day, David gave uh, Julius five sets of these photos. Uh, later, Rosenberg visited David and gave him $4,000. Uh, and asked him to go for a walk again, repeat all the instructions back to him to make sure he had memorized um, everything going on. David testified during the court hearing that he had used that $1,000 to pay some household debts Mm -hmm. and then the $4,000 to pay for the lawyers that were representing him at the testimony. (laughs) If you're not going to run, use it to pay off the debts. If you're going to run, well, you're running out of the debts anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I think the debt collectors are the, the least of your worries. Yeah, uh, it's like well, paying off the debts is, is is a sure sign that he intends to stay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, sometimes they can be more threatening than the uh, FBI and the federal government chasing after you. Yeah, Vinny the shark <laughs> will actually come find you in Moscow, whereas yeah. the Edgar Hoover's boys won't. Yeah, they 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 don't care. <laughs> So during her testimony, uh, David's wife, Ruth, collaborated uh, all of this, um, what she spoke. And so that's basically the end of part one of the story, because there's a bunch more with the testimonies and backgrounds of uh, Harry Gold, uh, Litcher and Bentley, as well as uh, propaganda the Communist Party put out in respect to the Rosenbergs uh, during mm-hmm. this entire thing. And eventually what befell them and the um, what the court decided on. I'm actually really interested in uh, on the, uh, it, some of the propagandist stuff because I know that part of the story here was there was a lot of doubt that they weren't being railroaded mm. during the trial and everything. And after we've experienced what we what we have with with the Russian fueled social networking election uh, disinformation, right? That this may be a tried and true tactic by them that their propaganda may have muddied the waters of a relatively clear-cut case because it sounds like there was a lot of confessions and a lot of evidence in, in this yeah yeah it seems like it was basically just like yeah we did it mm. but yeah obviously like to throw a political spin on this i mean we know a lot and a lot of this stuff was was confessed to so it's hard to believe that enough to swear the conviction one way or the other came out years later after people had died of it but yeah hey, we'll find out <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and it's like um, a lot of people probably that were paying attention to every little thing at the time mm-hmm. might have been like, oh yeah, they're obviously guilty. Yeah, but if you weren't paying attention to like every little nitty gritty detail and following it uh, to the letter, it's the same as like um, like Biden just released uh, some of the nine eleven reports and whatnot. And I saw some news articles that were like, oh my god, the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family helped pay for nine eleven, and it was like, we. We knew that. <laughs> yeah, we knew that. Wait, did you not know? <laughs> yeah. I Well, I mean, I remember talking to uh, some coworkers at the time, and they were mm. all about invasion of Iraq. And I was like, how many of the hijackers were Iraqi? And they're like, I don't know. Two, three, none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, like, you know, there's a lot of information out there. Some people, you know, work yeah really hard jobs and don't have time to, you know, get all the information. And I think that you probably have a better excuse back then than you do nowadays because everything had to be in print media. Yeah, it's true. Though like nowadays it's just, you're bombarded with information so much that you don't even know like what to believe. Like case in point, all the COVID stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are drowning in information, but you're not limited by column inches either. You're limited to the social media algorithm deciding that it just needs to push you further down the rabbit hole you've already started it. Yeah. Turns out that's a very profitable strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As everybody who's ever watched YouTube knows. Exactly. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, the number of coincidences that kind of had to happen for this to work that his brother-in-law ended up having access to the secrets. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very, very lucky, too, for the Russians to, like, all right, we got, like, some people that are friendly towards us. Mm -hmm. Their parents were Russian. Uh, It just so happens that one of them knows someone who's now working at Los Alamos and part of the Manhattan Project. Like, yeah, the pieces kind of, like, fell together very nicely. Yeah. I wonder if that made them overconfident because stuff like uh, 
the uh, Anna. Oh, I forget her name. The really hot Russian oh, oh, spy yeah, with yeah. red hair. Uh, Anna Chapman. That's the one. Yeah. The story of of her cells and what they did were was pretty much laughable from an intelligence perspective. You know, they figured, hey, we'll do a bunch of low confidence things and maybe we'll strike gold again. Yeah. Or or, or low likelihood things, not low confidence. Right. Yeah. Apparently a minor celebrity in Russia at this point. <laughs> yeah, this is media personality. It can't turn out like Anna Chapman uh, for everybody. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Till next episode. Till next episode. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.